Well, good morning. morning. Thanks, Jess. (laughs) My name is Tripp, and this is Brad. If you haven't figured it out, we're going to team teach this morning. Um, We're going to do that next week as well. Um, And our hope really is for the next couple weeks to cast um, some vision for us as a church um, as we step into a new season together as a family. Um, As most of you know, um, two weeks ago we sent out and laid hands on uh, part of our family and sent them to start a new expression of the church in Venice. And that's super exciting. Um, It's been really a prayer that we've had since we began nine years ago. Um, It's an exciting part to see God be a part of that reality and make that reality. Um, But I think the other side of it is it's also sad. And it's also depressing. And as you look around, there's a lot less chairs in here. And it's pretty full today, yeah. Uh, We took a lot of chairs out, just so you know. Um, We did kind of move some things around to make it look the same, but it's not. Um, But um, yeah, I think sometimes as I think about that, I don't know if you guys have ever been to like a Christian camp or anything like that before. I grew up in a home where I did those things. And or maybe you've had this in your life where you've had this kind of like big like spiritual high and then you like come back and like all of a sudden like life just hits you and you're like, oh, that's kind of not so great anymore. And there's this kind of this like momentum suck. And I think it can sometimes feel like that. It can feel like a sacrifice um, to be separated um, from the people that we loved and did so much life with. And I think the truth is that it is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to multiply. Um, it's, it's a sacrifice to send people out and not be able to do life with them like we used to do. Um, I think sometimes in Christian circles we can also feel this. I know sometimes I feel this way. I know I've heard it before. Um, that the ones that are sent are the ones that are more faithful. All right? They're the super Christians, the ones that are sent to some other field. And those of us that are, are left somehow don't feel as important or faithful at times. And that's a lie. That's not true. I want to say and remind us that it takes the same amount of faith to send people, maybe not even, maybe even more to send people, knowing that it's going to be a loss and a sacrifice than it is to kind of go and like step into something new at times. And the truth is, really, in God's economy, each person is equally valued, And each is equally indispensable, and it's his plan to make himself known throughout the world that way. And each person that's here is valued just as much, whether what your role is, your position is, your gender is, your race is, God's love and care is equally acceptable or accessible um, to you um, as it is to anyone else that is out walking in a new place. I think the good news is that we, we get to see that um, in the Godhead himself, right? That, that we see this reality of, of equal value and sacrifice. The Trinity purposefully separated so that Jesus could sacrifice his life, so that you and I can have life now. You see, the most painful part that Jesus felt in his life wasn't when they like pressed the crown of thorns on his head, or when he was standing there and they were whipping and beating him, or even when he was hanging on the cross in complete agony. That wasn't the most painful part of his life. The most painful part was being separated from the Father. 
And he sacrificed his life and really died in faith that the Father would raise him from the dead and that they would be reunited for all eternity. And not just be reunited as a trinity, but be reunited with you and I, his followers, his people. That the wholeness that was lost in the garden could now be restored again. You see, the good news is that Jesus understands the pain of separation. And he died and he rose again so that that would be a temporary thing in your life and in my life. But not only that, he sent the comforter. He sent the spirit to establish the church so that we wouldn't be alone. So that as he returned to the Father, they separated again. And the spirit came. Obviously, they're always all together. But you know what I mean. They separated again so that we wouldn't be alone. You see, the church really, it's not just an an organization um, that has a role to advance God's agenda or plan for the world. The church is a people, it's a body given to one another so that we would have relationship with each other, so that we would have community with one another, so that we would actually learn to live how we were designed to live. Which is, by the way, why we call our name, ourselves SOMA. Right? It's not just some like crazy acronym, like sometimes people think that's what it is. But SOMA is actually the Greek word for body. And if you look up that word in, in the original language, it's not just to describe one singular body. It's often used to describe large or small groups of planets or large or small groups of stars, heavenly bodies, or, or groups of people united into one society as a family. It's really what the New Testament describes as the church, where each individual would, would use their gifts and abilities to make one corporate whole, so that each, each member would be cared for, each member would be pointed to, the, to God, and each member would get to spread the glory of God together, like, like the water covers the seas. That's what it means when we say Soma. That's what it means when you see all these little signs around here that say Soma, that, that, as a pers- that as a family, each person is equally valued and cared for and loved, and we would experience that love together as a family so that those outside this family would get to exceed and experience the, hoof- the truth of Jesus as we declare that, we, that we no longer have to walk alone, that we no longer have to walk alone in this world. There are so many people in this city that are walking alone all the time. Even if they are in community, they're still walking alone. And we get to have a different piece of life. We get to be invited into a relationship with God who can bring wholeness and life and togetherness. And so what we want to talk about over the next couple weeks is what we as elders have sat down and, and prayed over and, and believe that God is calling us to in this next year. So we're going to talk about that for the next few weeks. And, um, and please know that um, like there's little cards on your things. I'm going to read this in a second, so if you're sitting on it, you can pull it out. Um, but um, please know as we talk about these things for the next few weeks, um, this vision that we talk about and that we want to share with you um, starts and ends and is in the middle with Jesus being the king and with Jesus living in relationship with you and us living in relationship with Jesus and living in relationship with one another. And so I want to 
I want to, I want to read uh, what our vision is for, um, for the church this year as we kind of head into 2020, or 2020. How will you say that now? Um, anyway, yeah, I think either way, I can say it, right? Yeah. It, it sounded weird. Yeah, 2020, there's too many twos and too many zeros. All right. Anyway, I'm going to read it. Here we go. In 2020, we want to reestablish our church in our identity so we can resend in the future by growing in prayer, worship, evangelism, and leadership clarity. I'll read it one more time. In 2020, we want to reestablish our church in our identity so we can resend in the future by growing in prayer, worship, evangelism, and leadership clarity. We can just kind of sum it down in some ways and just say um, we want to reestablish so that we can resend. That could be a little, little tag word if you want. But those four things we're going to talk about because they're really the important parts of it. Um, but we, we, want to, we want to see this happen, be reestablished, because from day one when we sat and dreamed about this church, the vision really has always been to see many expressions of God's family all over the city so that more and more people will get to know the Jesus of the Bible, not some broken version that he is in our culture. And so if we're going to be the church um, that really lives the way that Jesus designed us to be the church, we're going to need to be reestablished in our identity so that we can send out more family members in the future, so that we can be excited about that and also mourn that again in the future. And as you look through Scripture, really what is very clear is that a, a healthy church body, a healthy, healthy soma family, if you want to say it that way, is, is a church who is continually growing in prayer, continually growing in worship, continually growing in evangelism, and really has leadership clarity. And so this week we want to kind of talk about those four and kind of give big picture overview of what those terms mean biblically. Uh, and then next week, we're going to kind of spin out more details of what that looks like to live out the discipleship in each one of the environments, each of the four environments that we have here as a church. And so, um, so make sure that you plan to be here for that. And if you're not going to be here next week, maybe you should change your plans. Um, <laughs> or if you can't change your plans, um, you have to go back to Colorado or something like that, um, you can just download it and listen afterwards. Um, but if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start there this morning. We're going to kind of be around, but um, we're going to start there this morning. Um, and this, Colossians is a book that was written to, to a church in a city that was about 100 miles outside of Laodicea, which was, was a much bigger city. Um, and really the purpose of this book was written to encourage the church um, um, for the ways that they have lived in the past and the ways that they have demonstrated God's love in the past, but also there's a call in this book for them to grow in other areas and to continue to live out the life in the Christian community. And so I think this is a very fitting book for us um, to read today, and, um, and I believe it's what God would say to this church. Um, he would say, well done, faithful servants. I love you. Continue to walk. Be careful to walk out these ways as a family. So, yeah, um, I'm going to stop because I think I went too long. Um, but Brad is going to read from Colossians. Yeah, so Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 28. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. Uh, he says, He, that's Jesus, is the one we proclaim, 
admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you, for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elements, elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the divinity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Uh, this passage, it, it begins with him talking about this, this thing. He's strenuously contending, uh, which I know we, we talk that way all the time, right? Like, I strenuously contend with you uh, that the Lakers are better than the Clippers. But that's a good example. Uh, a, a better example might be like a child uh, who really wants a present, really wants a new toy, and they will use every fiber of their lives to make sure that their parents know, uh, I want that new toy, or I want that trip to the park, or I want that ice cream. They're going to do whatever it takes for people to know that that's what they want, and they're not going to be satisfied until they get it. Uh, when their parents come home every day, they will ask for it. They will point it out. They will do their chores. They will search for pennies in the couches. They will try to decipher their parents' schedules to say, this is the time when I should ask once again, can I have this toy? They will use all their energy to stubbornly pursue that trip, that ice cream. They're fixated on it until it's done. That's what Paul is saying, that he says he strenuously contends that we, that the church, would become mature. He's going to do it all. Maybe even a better example here uh, is that of a parent who gives their whole selves, everything that they have, every moment of life, every resource they have, every prayer, to the raising of their child to be a complete, mature, well-adjusted adult that's sent into the world to have a, a massive impact and a quiet impact at the same time, right? Like, that's, that's what Paul is saying, that that's the kind of energy that he's putting forth. That's what he's contending for. And what's interesting is that this strenuously contending is not just for um, a toy or a present or a trip to the park. All of this energy is going towards seeing us become fully mature in Christ. That's what he, he's proclaiming Jesus. He's admonishing. He's teaching people. But it's all so that there would be a church that's complete and that's whole in Jesus. And, and everything Tripp said is so beautifully true 
And, and Jesus does look on our church and says, I'm so delighted in you. I think Jesus also looks at us and says, um, we are still so broken, still such a mess. And that, that what Paul also says is that the energy that he's working with is not some sort of mustering up of like, I'm just, you know, highly motivated. Like Paul is a driven type A person, uh, which maybe both of us up here are. Uh, but he's saying that the energy that he has for this comes from Christ that works so powerfully within him. He's using all the energy that Christ has put in him. And just sort of a side note, when we talk about goals or plans or things we want to accomplish, um, you know, when you, we, we write out plans of what we want to do in the next year, you know, become more vegetarian, you know, drive fewer miles, whatever it might be. Those are just my own personal ones. Uh, and at the end, we pray. You know, we pray for, for God to give us energy. When we're really tired, we say, God, could you let me have the ability to do this work? I wonder what it's like if we were to pray for God to give us the energy of Christ, the energy of Jesus. Not as a, I know energy of Jesus can sound like some sort of pseudo-Eastern mysticism thing. Uh, had, a, had a Thai neighbor once that just said, you have a good energy. But like the literal power of Christ, as Paul writes in, a, in Ephesians, the power of the risen Lord that works within him. Or as he says in Philippians, to both do the will and the work of Christ, it's him that's doing it all. And so, family, I just want to say the only way for us to be the church like at all, to, to exist at all, to live in any of this, is only through the power of Christ working within us as, as the power of Christ worked to raise Jesus from the dead. Amen. That's the kind of power that we need. Amen. And then the goal that he has here uh, is really simple. He even spells it out for us in verse 2. He says, my goal, which is great because that's what we're talking about today. He says, my goal is that you would be encouraged, that you'd be united in love, that you'd be full of riches from a complete understanding and knowing Jesus. <laughs> And that in Jesus, we would find treasures and wisdom and knowledge. What Paul gives here is the goal of a long, long view. Um, it's a long view that looks way ahead of anything that we could kind of imagine. Way further than, you know, this year we want to make sure all of our missional communities are better than they were last year. This is a big view. Like, no, no, like, that at the end of time, we'll all gather around and we'll all be whole and complete because of the work of Jesus. That's a pretty thing, big thing. And then this maturity that he's talking about, that we'd be mature or complete or whole, he makes it very clear that it's this encouragement, which I find interesting. A mature believer, a mature church is one that's encouraged, a mature church is one that's united in love. A mature church is one that, that has this full, complete understanding and just knows Jesus and wants to know more and more and is not satisfied. That's a mature follower of Jesus. That's a mature church. And then he says this thing about treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which I'm like, what is that? I want some treasures. What are these little jewels that you find within knowing God? 
I think um, spending time journaling this week, or last week actually, uh, I wrote, these, these are the kind of treasures you find in Jesus. Maybe one of these is for you. That you're loved, that you're his, that you belong, that you matter, that your life and existence is glorious because it gives glory to Jesus, that you're a mess and that you're deeply loved. And the knowledge, I think, is stuff like this. These are the things that a mature, complete person knows, that you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, that you don't have to defend yourself to anyone. That you don't have to hide because you have a father that will pursue you. You don't have to grieve alone. You don't have to celebrate alone. And all of these things, all of this encouragement, unity, love, understanding, all of this for Paul is knowing Jesus and being mature. Paul is even making very clear, this is what a thriving life looks like. This is what a safe life looks like. This is what a life risked looks like. Then um, in verse 6 to the end, he, he begins to shift. And he says, so then, not just that we would have this sort of maturity, but he says, so then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, you would continue to live your lives in him. What a victory that would be for us. That just as we've received Jesus, we would continue to live our lives in him. Now that might sound like a low-level goal, um, but for me on most days, that's a high-level goal, that I would continue to live in Jesus in the same way that I received him. The way that we received him is on our knees with nothing really to give, nothing really to offer, having forgotten who we were made to be, having forgotten who we were meant to worship, and we receive Jesus uh, like a force of nature. Man, that we would live in that and continue to live in that. What an amazing thing. And then he clarifies even more, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Rooted and built up. No matter what comes, no matter how much you have to deal with, that you're growing deeper and deeper and higher and higher. I think that's this, you know, we've probably all seen the image. Uh, It's a great logo that was really popular in the late 90s, early 2000s of a tree with a root system underneath it, you know, and then the tree gets higher. But that's uh, Paul's playing with that image, that as our root system goes deeper and deeper, that the tree above grows higher and higher. And anyone who's played around in a garden knows this, knows that this is how it works. We actually have the person who owned our house before bought these uh, big bushes And instead of taking them out of the planter that they were just shipped in, she just plopped them down on the grass, side by side. And those trees have grown huge, and they've busted out. The root system is busted out of the little wooden casing that it has, and now they're deep within the ground, and I will tell you it's irritating. But this is what Christ is doing with us as a church. He's putting us in this city, and I will tell you, for the city, it's irritating. That the roots keep, the roots keep going, they keep getting deeper. It doesn't matter what keeps getting thrown at the saints in this city. It continues to exist. And not just exist, but go deeper and deeper, and the tree above it gets higher and higher. That's what Paul is calling us to be. 
That's what we mean when we say we want to be reestablished so that we could resend people. Mm. That we would know the fullness of God, he says in verse 9. That we would put our lives underneath him. To know the fullness of Jesus. Man, we could just, there are no amount of sermons or series or studies or conversations that we could have where we would get to the very end of understanding this person of Jesus and the work that he's accomplished. There's no amount that we could do to get to the end. And Paul is saying, keep going after that. Uh, and so this year, that's, that's really going to be our mantra and our rallying cry, that we would be uh, all about the work, that we would be seeking every day for God to give us the energy that he would put within us for us to be established in Christ, to be encouraged, to be encouraging people, to be united, to be uniting kind of people, to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, and we'd do that all together. Uh, that's what we mean by reestablishing our church so that we could even resend. Because that's the other irritating thing about these trees is they keep dumping out seeds to other areas that are then growing where they shouldn't grow. And the grass, that's beautiful. Uh, and so these four things that we said as well, growing in prayer and worship, growing in evangelism and leadership, uh, these are uh, part of the, the nutrients that you have to give something for the roots to get deep. Um, it's kind of how we could foster an environment where that growth could happen. Like a farmer who knows, man, I'm not going to get a crop unless I have seeds and soil and water and sunlight. That's why the, the whole agriculture thing they're trying to build off the coast of uh, Dubai isn't working because they don't have several of those elements. Uh, you guys can look that up later. It's, it's cool. Uh, and so these are the four things. And so Tripp and I are going to take turns talking about them. Yeah, I want to, um, we're going to start by, I'll talk about prayer. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's fitting, and there's a reason why it's first on the list. Um, really because our prayer life usually is a defining gauge, uh, or maybe a litmus test to who we think is actually in control, and who's actually the one doing the work, and where we need to find and draw our power from. Um, really, a, a life without prayer a church without the foundation of prayer um, is susceptible to fatigue, to failure, and in many ways it, it just screams, I've got this, God. Your, your opinion doesn't really matter that, mo that much. Um, and in pride, we're basically saying, I can live the life of God without the voice or the words of God speaking to me. And I think it's, it's, I know for myself, it's, it's easy to kind of like see some things and like I'm going to start, I'm going to run in with good intentions to start doing the work of God. But the truth is, and the reality is, is that prayer is the real work. It's the real work of a disciple. Prayer is the real work of the church. It's one of the ways that we care for one another when we're apart. It's, it's a way that you can care for the Feistel family right now when you're not with them. It's a way that you can care for the Venice church plant right now if they're not with us. And it's a way that we care for one another, and it's a way that we build relationship with God, and it's in a way that we reestablish this church here in Culver City. 
And prayer really needs to be a central part of our life as a family. As a family, we get to call on God to do his work. We get to. We get to. It's good news. See, if you look at the book of Acts, um, what you'll see um, is how the church got started, and you see how the Holy Spirit moves in the lives of people, and, and, and the church grows and expands across Jerusalem and then out into other cities and all around the known world. But if you read it kind of like what I do with the eyes, my eyes, I see all those actions. But I think it's easy to miss the fact, if you don't read it with this other intention, that this movement that we see there really starts and continues with prayer. I want to just highlight a couple of places real quickly for you. Um, in Acts 1, verse 14, this is right uh, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and while the disciples are, are waiting in Jerusalem, and it's before the church even gets started, this is what they're doing. These are all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary and the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the disciples, those that were close to Jesus, were devoting themselves to prayer, and all the other ladies that were a part of following Jesus around were there, and then Jesus' mother were there, and his brother were there. And then the Spirit comes on top of them, and they go out into the city, and they share the good news of Jesus, that he died and that he rose again and he made a new way for the brokenness of sin to be restored. And many people believe on that first day and they start doing life together and they try to figure out what it looks like to be the church and to walk in these ways. But before any of that even happened, they were established on prayer. Before they went out, before they told anyone, before they did any of the living together and being the church, they were praying. It's important to see that. In chapter 2, as the church is beginning to be established, look at what it says they were doing in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were people who were dedicated to be equipped. They were dedicated to celebrating with one another. And they were devoted to praying together. That's what they did as a church in, in chapter 6. Uh, verse 4, we see the leaders of the families doing the same thing. It says, the apostles say this, um, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they were leading, and their leadership was dependent on prayer. Really, as leaders, this should give us a clue on how we should lead. If you're leading anything, you're leading your home, you're leading at work, you're leading in the church, and where you go, it should be started with prayer. That's how we lead as leaders. If you want to spin that out even further, and you see the church grow and expands to surrounding cities, it, it gets to Colossae, which we just were reading from. And if you go further in that book, um, Paul reminds the church about what they're doing and, and why, why does he remind them of these things? Why? Because it's easy for us to forget. I think we all can say we know this but we quickly forget it. And we run into doing a bunch of other things. And so chapter 4, it says this, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That's what he reminds the church of, because we forget. This word devoted is, is the same Greek word that, that um, 
that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus tells his disciples um, to get a boat ready for him um, because the crowd was getting too close and they didn't, so he could kind of teach from that and so they wouldn't crush him. And this, this word here, the same word, this boat was set apart. It was basically devoted for the purpose of taking Jesus away from the crowd so that it wouldn't be so threatening. Devoted is really this idea of being dedicated for a task. It's something that you're appointed to. So the idea is that the church is not just designed by God for a task, but they're also giving themselves to it. And so God's people are designed by God for prayer, and we're called to give ourselves to it. If you look at every movement of God um, since the beginning of time, um, really, um, or any revival that you can, can, can look at in, in modern times, they're all preceded by prayer. They're all preceded by prayer. It's like 100% every time. If you, it's, it's pretty simple, and yet we forget to do that, and we do something else. In the 1800s, um, there was this great preacher and theologian named Charles Spurgeon. You may have heard of him. Um, probably someone said, mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, so at the age of 19, he was asked to be the pastor of this church, uh, New Park City Chapel in London. It was one of the larger churches in London at that time. It wasn't gigantic, but it was a, it was a good-sized church. And so at the age of 19, he took over to be their pastor which often we say they're not old enough to do that at 19. But God uses who he wants. And, and Paul also says, don't let people look down on you for your age. Age is not a determining factor of wisdom or maturity or call to God's work. Don't be deceived by that. Anyway, that wasn't what I was going to talk about. At the age of 19, um, that's just a little riff, um, uh, he takes over this church and the church quickly begins to grow. And, and many people come to know Jesus, and the church grows, and it moves from one building to the next building and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the age of 22, he's leading more than 10,000 people. Now, this is way before there was ever a megachurch. This is the very first megachurch that I know of. Maybe there was one in Acts, but I don't know. Um, doesn't give us numbers. But, but as, as this church grew... Um, many leaders would come to him and ask him how his church grew so quickly. And the same thing happens today. Anything, anytime a church does something and we see growth, people always go and ask, how did, how did you do that? How did you do that? What's the silver bullet? What's the next model for us to follow? What's the strategy to help our, our churches grow? With good intention. Um, and so people would come to Spurgeon and they, they would say, how did, how did you do this? What, how did you make this church grow? And he would say, let me show you the backbone of my ministry. And he would lead people down some steps into a basement, and he would crack open a door, and in this room, there would be a few hundred people praying. And every time he spoke, people would be down there praying. And all week long, people would dedicate themselves to praying for God's work, to pray for the lives of people to be saved in their city. And so he would open this door and he would say to the other leaders, this is the strategy. This is the powerhouse. Prayer is the strategy for movement and for growth in the church. You see, we can come up here and we can cast any kind of vision and any kind of cool, hip ideas, um, and some of them may sound good, um, and they sound good in my brain sometimes, 
Um, but if prayer isn't the forefront, there's no point in even talking about them. It's, it's a mute point. And as a family, I want to call us to prayer. And I want to remind us that that's our identity, that we're people devoted to prayer. Not, not because it's something that, that Christians do, or it's something so that we would get some desired result in our life or in the life of our city, but really because it's a gospel issue and it's the gateway into intimate relationship with God. Prayer is not just for other people. It's for you and it's for me so that we would deeply know and understand the presence of God and that out of that love, we would then share it with other people. So we're going to move on to worship, um, but it has to start with prayer. Yeah, and, and that we would uh, grow in worship, it almost sounds like the, the same thing, but, but it's unique and different that, uh, and intentionally set it aside as well from prayer, that um, any movement of the gospel has also been centered on worship, and not just, um, you know, kind of generically, like all of life is worship, uh, just like you know, everything we do is worship. I mean, that, that part is, is true, and that's a really good idea. But, but worship that you see throughout the scriptures is, is that God commands and calls people to put their full attention, their bodies, their voices, their minds, even like what they're dressing and all of these things so that, so that they would focus on doing something that's hard for us to do as humans, which is delight in a God who is not us. Uh, and, to, and to delight and adore a God who's done remarkably more than we could even imagine. Uh, and so kind of the core component of, of a church that's maturing and being encouraged in love and uh, being united and finding these treasures of the knowledge of Jesus is one that's focused on declaring what we already do know about Jesus, uh, saying what we, we do believe about Jesus right now and saying that to God. Uh, I think it's even deeper than that in the scriptures that uh, we find that our hearts need to declare who God is. It's, it's a need that we have, just like food and shelter and water. Uh, in fact, there are several moments with prophets uh, and even God's people redeemed out of Egypt where their need to worship and declare who God was was better and greater than their need for shelter and for food and for water. Uh, it's that core to what it means to be a human. Uh, our souls were made for that. Uh, gathering to declare this is who God is, uh, just to God alone, uh, to one another, in our homes, in the city, uh, wherever we go, when we gather together like this, where we're uh, in our homes and in living rooms or in patios, uh, in restaurants, whatever it might be, that we could just stop and declare this is how wonderful Jesus actually is. Did you notice that thing about Jesus that like he walked on water towards the disciples and that's how Jesus walks towards us? Like that kind of thing, uh, that that's who we would be as a people. Uh, every vibrant movement of the gospel has been focused on having that kind of encounter and celebratory nature about who God is. Uh, one other just sort of point on this uh, is in the book of Acts, as we've talked about often today, and the first eight chapters, everything that happens, everything that happens in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts uh, is with the disciples either going to or coming from worship. Everything that happens in the first eight chapters, it's 
that's what's happening. They're either on their way to worship God or on their way from worshiping God, and that's where all the miracles and the teachings and all those things happen. Only after that, in chapter 9, moving forward, it's this scattering through suffering. Uh, And then even in the suffering, there continues to be these moments of worship and prayer, even where uh, jail cells are even smashed open and people walk in liberty. Uh, That is kind of the, you know, if if prayer is the, what did you say, the, the engine? Powerhouse. The powerhouse. Oh, that's cool. Now I can't come up with anything to compare to powerhouse. Uh, <laughs> I said backbone too. You can use something. You said what? I said backbone as well. It's I the think. backbone. I think. Yeah. Then the then worship. That's a better one. Then uh, we pr- we rehearsed all of this. Uh, if prayer is the backbone of the church, then that I think that worship then becomes the nervous system that goes up and down. Uh, that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. And that's frankly something we've grown in, but we could always, we definitely need to grow even more in that kind of devotion to declaring to God uh, who he is and who we've come to, to know him to be. Yeah, so as people of God, we, we pray, we worship together, and then we declare the truth of God to everyone we interact with. We evangelize. And I know you guys were like all excited and then I got the evangelism. And like one person, Keith, where are you at? It was like, yes, now we're going. Right? It's like, we, it's like, whoa, let's stop the car. Evangelism brings so many raw emotions or like cultural connotations. It makes us fearful. It question, makes us question our gifting. It can sound like a duty. It can make our hearts race. A myriad of other emotions. I think if we're honest, um, we know deep inside that it's a mark of a healthy church, and we, we want to be a part of a church that has evangelism. We just don't want to walk down it ourselves often. We, wanna, we want the fruit of evangelism. We love to hear people come to Jesus. We all jump up and cheer at baptisms, but evangelism we want to avoid. It's true. I think if we're going to walk as a, as a church, it's going to, if we're going to walk in evangelism, it's going to take a few things. But first, it's going to have to be that we have to know Jesus, that we have to know what he's like, and you're going to need to have an understanding of his character and how Jesus would handle the good news of the people to the people that you're talking to and that you need to give that to. And the reality is that, that we're going to need to know his love Because what we talk about is always what we love. I don't know who said that quote. It's been said probably by many people. But the reality is what we talk about is what we love. And so we're going to need to know and love Jesus in order to talk about him. Ephesians 5 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love. So walking in love means that we're going to share Jesus with other people. More than anything else we would share with them. So walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's a pretty deep thought that every moment, every um, relationship, every conversation, everything that you get to walk in in life, you would say, how can I use this as a moment to share the gospel? What would Jesus do in this situation. I hate those bracelets, but it's true in some ways. Um, I guess I can say that on the 
out loud, right? Um, how can I display what he's like? How can I call people to love the Father with my words and with my actions? You see, one of the things, if you look at the life of Jesus, if we're going to imitate his life, um, he spent his life praying, he spent his life studying the scriptures, and then he spent his life speaking. And he spoke about the kingdom of God wherever he went. He spoke to big crowds, he spoke to small groups, he spoke to individuals, he spoke in homes, he spoke in the marketplace, he spoke in the temples, he spoke as he went down the road. And what did he do? He talked about his dad. He talked about his father. He just continued to point people to his dad over and over and over and over again, wherever he was. If we're going to be a church that imitates Jesus, what that means is we're going to need to tell others about God, our Father. And it will require knowing what he's like and what he's done so that you will know what to say about our, our dad. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus reached down and he called you and me out of the slavery. He paid the price for your and my soul with his own blood. And then he rose again to defeat death, to give you and me life. And not just a, a life of freedom, but a life now as a son of the king with a new dad. A better dad than we could ever have. And that's what we tell people. That Jesus is better. That his grace is more abundant than anything else we desire. Anything else that we, that we grow weary chasing. Jesus is better. Our dad is better. We tell others that Jesus has everything we need. That everything has already been given to us. We are completely satisfied with God the Father and with Jesus' Son and with the Holy Spirit that empowers us. Everything that you and I need to have peace in your life has already been given to you. Everything that you need to experience comfort and joy has already been given to you because Jesus has given you himself. And that's good news. That's really good news. And I, and I know that there's a lot of emotions around evangelism, but I want to just read this verse for us as we think about this. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. See, the good news is that the weaker we are, the more we need Jesus to shine, the more glory he gets when he uses us. It's in our weakness that Christ's power rests on us. If you look throughout Scripture, God is in the habit of taking the least likely candidates and using them for his purpose. And so if you feel inadequate to share the gospel, you're in good company. If you feel inadequate to tell people that God is better, you're in good company. God loves molding people back into his image and using people that, that understand their need of him. And so we get to walk this out in obedience and in faith that God is the one that's doing the work every day. It's really good. Yeah, I just, yeah, I have a mentor uh, who's 
who said, and he said this about many things, so it was one of his shticks, but uh, that we're never more like Jesus than when we're uh, pursuing and considering how can I make uh, the grace of God known to this person? Like, we're never more like Jesus than when we're doing that activity of thinking, I have a friend, and I'm trying to pursue them, and I'm trying to make the grace of God known to them. Uh, That's how we become even like Jesus. And the command to do evangelism is a gift that we've been given to see our own weakness, but to see the power of the Spirit working through us, and that that the command is that we would share the good news, right? Like, um, faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of truth. How will people hear unless people are spoken to? Uh, the, the fruit of God's grace is people being saved and, you know, going from death to life. The fruit that God does in our own lives is, is causing us to have some sort of courage and foundation and conviction around the things that we're sharing. And so it's God's gift to us. He says, I want you to do this task because it'll transform you. Uh, the, the last one is, is leadership clarity. Uh, which for some of us, this is the most exciting one. <laughs> We're like, yes, org charts. Um, I have a lot of org charts in my life these days. But what we mean by this is that churches uh, only thrive when they know who the leaders are and when they know what it means to be a leader. Uh, and when we know like this is what these people are called to do and this is what they're doing, that kind of clarity. Uh, we see this through the book of Acts. Again, it's like, oh, these people were sent to care for us. These are the, the deacons, the elders, the apostles. These are the ones that are, are training us, and they're supposed to care for us. They're supposed to lay their lives down for us. And that creates an actual safe community for people to grow. It also creates a challenging community for people to grow uh, and live out on mission. Uh, and so churches only thrive Uh, also, not just when we know who our leaders are and what they're supposed to do, which is stuff we're going to work on with just not, like, you know who your elders are. I think everyone has that. But, like, what is an elder supposed to do? What are deacons supposed to do? What is a missional community leader supposed to do? What are their qualities or qualifications? What is a DNA group leader even supposed to do? Like, that's all stuff we want to work on. But, But I think it's, for us, it's deeper than that. Um, churches also only thrive when their leaders are spiritually and emotionally healthy, um, when their families are healthy, um, when their souls are healthy. Like, churches don't thrive apart from that. Um, in fact, the early church in the New Testament doesn't have a ton of information on specifics. There's no role descriptions on, like, this is what you're supposed to do as an elder or any of that. Uh, the closest one uh, is in First Peter 5, where it's just shepherd them. Like, that's way specific, right? Uh, seems kind of generic to me. Uh, but the most specific the New Testament gets about leadership uh, is about the character and the qualifications and the posture of leaders. Um, healthy leaders lead healthy churches. Uh, and by healthy, we don't mean perfect. Um, in fact, most healthy leaders lead with the limp. Um, and they point to Jesus. Uh, and in fact, you know, I can just be super honest as one of your pastors or one of your elders. I'm currently, I had a counselor help me understand this this week. I am just a lamenting pastor at the moment. I'm just sad. That's like a general, not 100% sad, just like 85% sad. There's 15% other things in there. But that's not even a, that's not an unhealth. It's actually healthy to know who we are uh, and where we are. Uh, 
uh, healthy leaders aren't martyrs as well. Uh, we're not, God has not called any of us to uh, sacrifice our children. Uh, that's actually looked down upon in the Bible. Uh, sacrificing children, sacrificing your spouse, your family, even sacrificing yourself. Uh, the, there's, there was one sacrifice we know in the book of Hebrews who was the sacrifice for all. There's one priest we see in, in Hebrews that was priest for all. And so that's not even something that we're called to do. And, and so just even as you know, like as leaders, that's, as, as elders of our church, that's something we want to really lead into uh, this year, uh, to be committed for our own care uh, as we care for you. Uh, have a completely different mentor who describes, you know, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help your children. And every time I, you know, ignore that message on an airplane because uh, I'm not listening. But if I were to listen, I'd be like, that's kind of silly. I'm definitely going to put it on my own child first until, like, you really, like, understand the science behind it. And you're like, oh, by the time I try to help my child, I'll be dead. And then so will my child. Uh, that's even something that we're committed to as elders. And we'll talk more specifically about some of that leadership clarity stuff and all these others next week. Uh, another thing about uh, leadership this year uh, is that uh, for the last several years, Jeff Lowndes has been through a process uh, of you know, walking towards becoming uh, an elder and spending lots of time praying and processing and seeing uh, Jeff grow uh, as we even look at the qualifications for an elder, we see uh, Jeff having many of them as we've prayed about it. And, and so what we want to do is, um, uh, it's, it's, this is so much better than a primary or a caucus. Uh, <laughs> we as elders, have, as we've prayed and we've processed with Jeff uh, and Allie and their, their whole family situation, we just feel like now is a really good time to uh, appoint Jeff. But we also want to have a time for you guys to give feedback on uh, is, is Jeff uh, one of these uh, men above reproach? Uh, one of these people that's an example of, man, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I want to follow Jeff as I follow uh, Jesus. Uh, and so for the next uh, four weeks, you can spend time thinking about Jeff and thinking about is Jeff... Uh, that great uh, or not. And I'll send out an email as well. And uh, so I didn't mean to make it sound silly. Uh, uh, we'll send out an email with the, the qualifications. You can look at the scriptures. We're kind of, we're getting close to out of time today. Uh, and just kind of reflect, man, is this, and if you have any concerns or worries, and you can even just be spending time praying. Praying is the work uh, above even thinking. Um, and so give that feedback to us. Um, my experience will be a bunch today and then a bunch the day before. So that's always fun. Thanks for being so prompt. Um, that's what we have to share with you guys this morning. Uh, I want to read uh, Colossians one more time as we come and take communion, knowing that, that even as we take the bread and the wine, we're, we're taking with this eye towards Jesus uh, and that the maturity and the energy and the power that he's going to work within us um, yeah, I'm just going to read uh, just a little bit, uh, and then we can all stand and, and go and take communion. We only have two tables now, so if you go in the back, you'll end up coming back to the front. Uh, Colossians 2, I'm just going to read uh, 6 to 10, and have this in your minds as you come and take. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... 
Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces, spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Amen. Let's go and take and eat.